0: Welcome back to the Hand to Shoulder podcast, Cassie and Shelly here. This podcast has been a special project for Shelly and I as we picked a topic that challenged us not only to form an outline and questions to our speaker, but to engage in a conversation about a topic that we're not too familiar with. Today we are talking about motor neuron diagnoses and breaking down the role of therapy for these individuals with diagnostics of a motor neuron issue.
1: Our speaker today is Cynthia Ivey out of Phoenix, Arizona. She's a professor at Northern Arizona University and has spent many hours researching upper and lower, lower motor neuron diagnoses with additional clinic time, splinting and hands-on with these individuals. We hope you enjoy this interview as this knowledge that Cynthia brings us, it puts a different twist to hand therapy.
0: Don't forget to subscribe to our page and give us a five-star rating so we can change the world one hand to shoulder at a time. Welcome back to the Hand to Shoulder podcast. This is Cassie and Shelley. Today, we are venturing outside of our comfort box and dissecting a topic that we as hand therapists are not too familiar with or skilled in. Uh, We are interviewing Cindy Ivey from Phoenix, Arizona. Welcome to the show, Cindy. Thank
2: you. Thank you for having me. Okay. We are
0: we are excited to dive into your knowledge on what you know about motor neuron injuries. But first, let's get started with um just talking a little bit about yourself, maybe just a brief bio of how you got started in therapy and kind of where you're at today.
2: Well, yes. Okay. So, I my mother is an occupational therapist, um and my dad's a psychologist. And so I guess I had that um Kind of knowledge a little bit about it before I went to college, but when I was at University of Wisconsin Madison, I was really focusing on art and wanting to major in either art or psychology. So I was looking that direction, and then um, I think I just I decided to look at OT and then realized, well, yeah, this kind of does you know combine a couple of my interests. I was always good at science and math, so I I thought okay, I'll try that, and then. Um, when I graduated, I went into psych OT, and then very shortly after that, I realized I was um, in over my head where I was at the Dane County Hospital and Home in Wisconsin, and somebody from Mayo um, called me and said that my professor gave my name, and so I, I actually interviewed at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, um, not a place I was looking at going because of the location. Um, and I wanted a you know a warmer climate and, and both that and a big, and or a bigger city, but um, Rochester did not have any openings in the psych unit, so I um, I actually started in the rehabilitation unit, and then while I was there in a, a large thirty bed rehab unit at a major trauma center in the Midwest, um, I became interested in spinal cord injury, and shortly after that. Um, I was asked to be a part of the upper extremity reconstruction team, which was with Dr. Mike Wood, Dr. Peter Amadio, um, and two other therapists, um, an OT. And and actually, I think there were two PTs on the team, but mostly it was the two OTs that worked on the upper extremity components. And at that time, that was around 1984, there was not a lot of um, even tendon transfers going on. Today we have nerve transfers, but at that time, Um, even tendon transfers were very new. And so we were um, all working together to decide with um, spinal cord injury, with tetraplegia, also called quadriplegia, what would be the best way to give a patient back function, Um, you know, basically kind of robbing from one um, muscle to feed another. Um, And we started with uh, posterior deltoid to triceps and quickly went to brachioradialis, to extensor carpi radialis brevis, to help with the tenodesis hand. Um, so giving elbow extension and wrist extension can really increase a person's function big time. So that, I know this is supposed to be a short summary, but it, it does give a little context to how I got into motor neuron as well. Um, so that is, was my entry into hand therapy. And um, Dr. Wood and Dr. Amadio have both been incredible mentors to me throughout the journey, um, even maybe not even beknownst to them um, because of that entry and and scrubbing in for surgeries with them and discussing with them um, and the other um, team members um, how best to approach the rehab after tendon transfers, as well as helping prepare the muscles for tendon transfers. Um, Around that time, um, the the subspecialty of hand therapy was growing. Um, The American Society of Hand Therapists existed, but the certification of hand therapy did not yet exist. And so I got in kind of at the ground level of that as well and um, was in the inaugural, um, I don't know if it's called a class, but group that received the um, first certification of hand therapy. Um, I then moved to Arizona with the Mayo Clinic and Dr. George Irons, another um, hand surgeon mentor who was, um, had trained at Louisville, um, very interested in flexor tendon surgery and um, moved to Arizona. And in Arizona, I was uh, the very first OT um, at Mayo Clinic. And it was myself and one physical therapist, um, Tom Bollinger. Um, we started the rehabilitation unit there and it was all outpatient at that time. It was all general OT, general PT, um, the, the surgeons did have privileges at a local hospital. So we saw the post-op care, but did not have um, a, a hospital ourselves at that time. And so I was doing all OT. And with all OT, one of the or the two main groups that I received um, referrals from, other than, other than um, the hand surgeon, Dr. Irons, was rheumatology and neurology. And so, with neurology comes um, a large group of Parkinson's disease, um, a large group of MS, and a large group of just general neurologic disorders, many of those which fall into the motor neuron classification. So, so that's kind of a real loose background. Um, I then continued to work at Mayo for many years, um, 35 years total, 30 years full-time. And um, and then at about the 30-year, at exactly the 30-year point, really, I um, moved to full-time academia and was just more of a consultant and part-time at Mayo. And that was in 2015. And then in 2020, I, I did leave Mayo Clinic completely to focus on um, academics. And so now I am a full-time professor, a full professor at Northern Arizona University in Arizona. And I teach... OTPTPA and medical students, um, but primarily OT. And my um, my employer is the Northern Arizona University Occupational Therapy Department.
1: So how's that, um, Shelly and Cassie? <laughs> we are so lucky to have you. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> so I guess let's get started and let's talk about the motor neuron injury itself, the breakdown, illusion. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so motor neuron is a big classification of d- diseases, and it falls under even a larger umbrella of diseases called neurodegenerative diseases, of which you know, there's, there's other things that fall under that, particularly like um, Parkinson's disease and, and Huntington's disease. But motor neuron itself, motor neuron disease, is a breakdown of either the upper or lower motor neurons. And that can happen in a number of ways, most of which we don't know. There are now several genetic genes that connect to some of the motor neuron diseases, um, the most common of which is is ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or Lou Gehrig's disease. And um, we're learning more and more with each, literally, I believe, Each day if I could keep up with the reading. But there is so much research going on as to what breaks down motor neurons. How does that happen? Why do some people get it and others don't? And at this point in time, really what we know is that it it can be environmental, it can be genetic, but it's almost always a combination of the two. And the more we learn about genetics and the more genes that we discover, the more we realize that there's probably some sort of at least epigenetic or genetic cause to the problem. So um, an upper motor neuron is a neuron that is in the brain. A lower motor neuron is in the spinal cord and um and then um you know it, it exits the spinal cord and then the the neurons come together to form what we know as hand therapists peripheral nerves such as axillary, uh, musculocutaneous um ulnar uh, median radial and um so th- those ha- there are lower motor neurons within those but they are not in themselves lower motor neurons um so um how do you a- Asked me to talk about the stages of motor neuron disease, and there isn't always um, very predictable stages. It's different than when I don't know if um, some some of you in the audience may be aware of like the Honen Yar stages of Parkinson's disease, which are really quite predictable. Um, With motor neuron disease, it's not. uh, Staging is not as predictable. So that's um, that's a. You know, that is a problem because it can start in many different um, areas. Uh, It can start in the bulbar region, the cervical region, or the um, lumbar regions. Uh, Those are the three regions that are looked at when uh, classifying motor neuron diseases. So it could start with speech or swallowing. It could start with the hand. Um, It often does start with um, trouble with the thenar or hypothenar muscles in the hand or both. And it also could start with foot drop. Um, so but it's it's pretty unpredictable. And um the stages are also unpredictable, although there are staging, um there are different um staging criteria that are sometimes used for research, uh, but clinically it doesn't make as much sense uh to use the the staging. Stage one is when a, a client notices a symptom. So that could be. Anything, right? Because, <laughs> because I mean, we all have symptoms of things, but um, but basically, um, a person might remember back, yeah, I thought I had carpal tunnel and I was dropping things and I noticed weakness in my hand, so that would be stage one. Or they might say, yeah, I was having trouble swallowing and you know I thought I kept swallowing my water wrong, but you know it, it seemed to get worse and I've noticed it for the past two years. Stage one, or you know, I noticed muscle fasciculations. I noticed some, um, a little bit of, um, like I had trouble raising my foot up uh, when I was running. I tripped a little bit. Could be stage one. So first onset of symptoms is stage one. Then two can be divided into two stages, 2A and 2B. So 2A is when a diagnosis is made. And I'll talk more about that and how that's done after we get through the stages. But Once a diagnosis is made, a patient is in stage two. Then stage 2B is when a second region becomes involved. And that can take a long time, or it can happen very quickly after diagnosis. Um, Frequently, it happens very quickly, but with some variants of motor neuron disease, um, they can be in stage 2A for a long, long time, almost like when you're in a permanent remission with MS, for example. So. A second region, the three areas, again, that we talk about are bulbar, which is the brainstem, um, brainstem called bulbar because it looks like a tulip bulb, you know, if you look at it in isolation, so they call that bulbar, but uh, the brainstem and when they're staging in the brainstem, the symptoms, um, you know, are quite different, but, you know, two of the more common ones are speech and swallowing or that can be in the cervical region. And of course, that's what we're all familiar with. And often it will be in the um, the intrinsic muscles of the hand, Uh, believe it or not, will be the first involvement of the second region, but it could be anywhere in the upper extremity uh, or even neck for surgical region. And then in the third, it would be the lower extremity or the lumbar region. And that um, often does start with foot drop, but not always. It can be in a toe, or it could be um, in the thigh or the um, leg. Um, Third stage is involvement of a third region. (laughs) So motor neuron diseases are progressive by definition. Um, They all do options where somebody progresses so slowly that you don't even realize that they're progressing. But but by definition, motor neuron diseases uh, typically progress. And so stage three would be a third region is now involved. Stage four is need for a gastrostomy. So swallowing has gotten to the point now that um, that they, they need to be tube fed. And stage 4B would be respiratory support. Now, the reason I don't like this staging pattern is because after working in an ALS clinic for 25 years at Mayo Clinic, Clinic, we were one of the first centers of excellence for ALS. And after and, and at in an ALS clinic, you see all motor neuron diseases. You don't just see ALS. And I can talk more about that if you want. Um, basically, it's because a lot of um, other motor neuron diseases do progress to become ALS. So uh, it, working there for 25 years, many, many, many people go on what's called BiPAP. It's like a, a typical CPAP that people use for snoring or for sleeping, but BiPAP is a way that helps with both breathing in and expirating out, and it greatly improves the quality of life of people that have diaphragmatic involvement with their motor neuron disease, very common, and it increases quality of life, and we... Um, we even now um, at Mayo and other places do uh, what is called a diaphragmatic pacemaker, and it's basically electrical stimulation uh, to the diaphragm muscle through the skin. It's transcutaneous, um, and it's and it's um, it's called a diaphragmatic pacemaker. So um, I don't really believe that that's always stage four. We start that very early, sometimes even before a second region is involved, because. Um, especially the BiPAP, because it's been evidence-based to improve quality of life for your patient. So that's why the staging is not um, necessarily something that we fall back on.
0: You touched briefly on... Uh, clinical diagnosing of the motor neuron diseases. like, what is a typical pattern for somebody who no- starts to notice weakness or do they go to their family doctor? And then that's when the ball kind of gets rolling as far as maybe like an MRI or a spinal cord
2: tap, maybe an EMG. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit more. Yeah, I will. And I think it would be good to actually talk about the diagnosing a little bit as a part of that. So um, and, um, and at, at and maybe backtrack even from that and talk about um, that it can start an upper motor neuron or lower motor neuron. But to be definite ALS, um, you have to have both. However, to be, you know, primary lateral sclerosis, it's just upper motor neuron. To say progressive muscular atrophy, um, it's just lower motor neuron. And progressive bulbar palsy is just in the bulbar simp- um, area. And all of those three are, are distinct motor neuron diseases um, that we see, um, all three of the ones I just mentioned um, uh, do often go on if the patient lives long enough to become ALS because they start having other symptoms that carry them to a different diagnosis. So uh, where are they first found? Well, often it is, yes, at the primary care doctor's and um, office. And that's another reason I'm, I'm a huge proponent to get OT, and PT, um, including hand therapy, into the primary care um, arena. I think that so many hand-related things way beyond this podcast um, are first seen in the primary care doctor's office, and they don't even really know that we exist. I mean, everybody kind of knows that PT is out there. A lot of primary care physicians really don't know about occupational therapy and certainly not hand therapy. And I think that uh, we belong there and we could help um, identify some of these signs and symptoms because we do a thorough neuromuscular evaluation and a musculoskeletal evaluation that the primary care doctor, uh, frankly, doesn't. You know, they do a great one uh, often. My own primary care doctor does great thorough review, but they may miss some of the nuances that we are used to looking at um, as hand therapists. So I think I, I just wanted to put that plug in there for primary care. But yes, that's often where the patient will first notice that they're having symptoms. Now, personally, being both a hand therapist and a neurological therapist and one who worked at an AOS clinic, I have seen more than once uh, patients that were referred not necessarily just from Mayo Clinic, from outside clinics too, for carpal tunnel syndrome or for Guillain's canal compression. They might have they had some findings on an EMG, but that's not their primary problem. Their primary problem is motor neuron disease. And so we need to be aware of some of the signs and symptoms of a patient that might have concomitant um, you know, neuropraxias but it's not the neuropraxia that is their main problem. And one of the big signs of that is limited or no sensory deficits. I mean, with, with ALS and other motor neuron diseases, you typically do, a patient does not have sensory deficits unless they have a comorbid condition or a secondary condition. For example, one can get compression of the median nerve with weak wrist extensors because their wrist is held in flex. So much that it um, that it, it, it builds up pressure on the median nerve at the wrist just by closing the space of the carpal tunnel. So that isn't that's secondary, and it's because of re- um, weak wrist extensors, which sometimes aren't even noticed or checked on the time of the nerve conduction study and EMG. So because they're looking for something else, they're looking for a carpal tunnel or they're looking for ulnar nerve compression. So I think that. Um, you know, to speak to what you're saying, it can be noticed first by the therapist, the hand therapist, especially if their first sign, that stage one, the patient's first clinical sign is in their, if it is in their wrist or hand muscles, um, and even more common if it's in their intrinsic muscles of the hand. Because when, when physicians hear hooves, you know, the common sta- saying, they don't look for zebras they look for the, the, ho- the horses because that's the most common thing when you hear hooves. But in the case of motor neuron disease, it isn't common. And sometimes it takes a while to present itself uh, with ongoing symptoms and then continuation of problems. Sadly, I have seen surgeries that um, were done not necessarily uh, to try to correct a problem uh, because the person actually had a motor neuron disease. So, um, to talk about like the differences between what the signs would be in those early, early stages at the primary care clinic, at the therapy clinic, or, um, or even um, at a general um, neurology clinic that isn't a, a motor neuron specialist, um, upper motor neuron usually the strength tests out okay. If you're doing, um, if you're using, you know, the MMR criteria, the medical research. Um, Council MRC criteria, the, um, the Medical Research Council criteria, the, the manual muscle test that most of us use, the zero to five grading, where zero is you can't even feel anything, and five is full strength against resistance, against gravity, um, it might test a five out of five. They With upper motor neuron, the strength often tests out okay, and the muscle bulk is preserved even if the patient states that they feel weak but their movements are slow and less precise. Um, And there is most definitely spasticity noted and checking for spasticity by uh, quickly bringing uh, the the limb through full range and uh, looking for a catching or a locking. And um, they also may present with limb stiffness in general. They may just say, you know, my foot, I saw one a few weeks ago, He was here for our Parkinson's study because he thought he had freezing of gait, and he didn't have freezing of gait. What he had was, he called it stiffness in his toe. What he had was spasticity of his long toe extensors. So I did send him back to the neurologist for more testing and further workup. Um, Also, with upper motor neuron lesions, you're going to have increased hyperactive reflexes. And all of us can test for basic reflexes in our um, hand clinics. Lower motor neuron, on the other hand, there will be weakness, often severe weakness in isolated muscles and isolated muscle groups, not necessarily peripheral nerves. So it, it happens at the spinal cord level, not at the peripheral nerve level. So it won't be, you know, we're so used to looking at like where on the brachial plexus was the problem, but you need to go back to spinal cord anatomy for testing this and look at, um, look at very specific patterns of, um, you know, um, basically like anywhere from C, um, I would even go as high as C4, but C5 down to T1 when you're looking and, um, loss of muscle tissue, maybe loss of maybe atrophy, loss of muscle bulk, um, We frequently will see what's called a split hand syndrome, which is atrophy in both the thenar and hypothenar areas of the hand. So um, you can look down at your own hand and see that there's a little bulk in your hypothenar eminence, your thenar eminence. If that bulk is different from left to right, from one hand to the other on the patient and they're complaining of weakness, and they test weaker on their grip and pinch strength, uh, that would be typically lower motor neuron. Another sign of lower motor neuron is having increased muscular fasciculations. Little fasciculations is one of those words that sounds like what it is. You know, if you think of the word fasciculation, you think of kind of like a quick little tremor, a quick little, you know, uh, like when your eye twitches, like a twitch, um, that's a fasciculation. And increased fasciculations are a lower motor neuron sign. And then to the reflexes, decreased reflexes. So then you're like, okay, well... You know, what if they have both? Well, if they have both upper lip motor neuron and lower motor neuron signs, uh, that is actually one of the ways that the diagnosis of ALS is made. Um, it, it must have both in order to be definite ALS. So um, so what what you would want to look for and what the doctor wants to look for in a primary care setting or in a um, even a physical medicine rehab doctor is another place they sometimes show up. Um, I know all settings don't have physiatrists, but if there is a physiatrist, that's another place where this would first show up. And so they're going to look for, they're going to listen and observe their patient. How do they walk? Um, How are they holding items? Um, What, do they have a tremor? Um, Do they describe fasciculations? And then they're going to do their manual muscle test and look for both upper and or Lower motor neuron signs, and then the reflexes give a lot of um, a lot of you know um, credence to the picture. Or because you know, if there's decreased reflexes, that's a lower motor neuron sign. If there's increased reflexes, that's an upper motor neuron sign. So, um, and then they look. Of course, they look for the re- in within all the regions. Now, um, I definitely am focusing on hand because I know this is a hand center and this is a podcast for hand, but. Um, it, you would be looking in the bulbar and, and uh, lumbar regions as well. So, um, so uh, in the in the cervical regions, um, and I, that's why I said as high up as C four or even higher, diaphragm can often be one of the first things affected, and then the hand is also affected. And um, you know, the lower motor neuron sign would be um, weakness with breathing, and you know, the things that I already mentioned in the hand. Um, upper motor neuron signs, sometimes there would be like a clonic jaw where the jaw is held in place. They would have a hyperactive gag reflex, and they might have some pseudobulbar um, symptoms um, and then some spasticity in their neck and, and jaw. Um, so basically, when the diagnosis is made, uh, they, they have to have um, more than one region as well. Um, the onset of ALS, 70% of people that get a motor neuron disease, including ALS, it starts in the limbs and, it, and I don't know the breakdown between upper and lower rim, limb off the top of my head, but it does, 70% do start in the limbs, 25% start in bulbar, and less than 5% report respiratory problems as their first sign. However, they may still test to have some respiratory problems with an EMG to the diaphragm. So it is now standard of care uh, for EMG to to test the diaphragm early on. Um, So to be definite um, ALS, a person has to have both upper motor neuron lesions and lower motor neuron in three different regions. So that's a lot. So people uh, can have what's called probable ALS and that would be having lower motor neuron and upper motor neuron in two regions. And then maybe some upper motor neuron signs that are more rostral or uh, kind of superior to the lower motor neuron signs. And then there's laboratory supported, and this is where needle EMG is done. So lab means needle EMG. That is the lab that is used right now. The only lab there's no blood test, and the MRIs are not effective. Um, it is it's basically needle EMG. So lower motor neuron and upper motor neuron in one region, and then. Or they could have upper motor neuron signs in one or more region. Um, so maybe maybe they have upper motor neuron in two regions, or both in one region. And then that plus EMG evidence of a denervation, and that is the key thing that all therapists should know: denervation. There has to be evidence of denervation in two or more limbs. So um, because a lot of people will think, oh, this might be ALS, and you know, recommend an EMG, recommend a nerve conduction study. The nerve conduction study will often come out fine because sensory is not effective. But if the EMG is not showing sign of acute denervation, then that is not, that does not qualify for laboratory supported, um, ALS. Um, so, um, and then there, it goes on, there's possible ALS, which is um, just one region with both upper and lower motor neuron that's possible. Um, and then there's a more, there's other more complicated lab supported um, ways to look at it that the neurologist will look at it um, with fasciculation potentials. Um, I think those, those are called MUPS, MUPS. Um, and, um, that's, there's a different criteria for diagnosing ALS that was put out in 2008 called the Awaji criteria, and that, uh, uses more EMG criteria than typically the, um, the other criteria. So that's kind of the, um, you know, that's basically how it's diagnosed. Um, it's, it's not done through a spinal tap or, um, those, some of these other things like spinal taps, MRIs. Um, might be used to rule out other, um, you know, other diagnoses that aren't motor neuron diseases, but they don't rule in motor neuron diseases. Um, Motor neuron diseases are made by those lab, um, I mean, those um, office visits, manual muscle testing, um, um, the the evidence of um, either decreased or increased reflexes, um, and then the regions, um, and then supported with EMG showing denervation. Um, so we talked earlier that progressive muscular atrophy is just lower motor neuron disease. Progressive bulbar palsy is just bulbar region. Primary lateral lateral sclerosis is just upper motor neuron disease. Of those three, uh, the ones that are going to be seen most by hand therapists is the, um, lower motor neuron disease, progressive muscle, muscular atrophy. One sign that is typical and I I did um, briefly mention this earlier, but is what's called split hand syndrome. And so, if a person has both what what we think of as hand therapists as both ulnar nerve and median nerve compression or motor atrophy, and that's called split hand, where you see that um, you see that kind of atrophy on both the thener and hypothenar, that is, that's kind of an early warning sign because that's unusual to have that without a motor neuron disease. So that at the very least is, um, usually is uh, going to be progressive muscular atrophy principle, but it makes a world of difference. And I'm not the only um, person that uses that at a big ALS conference. I was, I did a poster on that on orthosis. I, I had a poster being used and almost every therapist that came to that poster said, that's the same thing I do. I use the oval aids. So it was really interesting to find out that a lot of us just discovered that on on our own. Um, And then number three, um, if if you're used to making um, kind of intrinsic plus orthoses, like for ulnar, for extreme ulnar nerve weakness, like in the... um, with Dr. Brand, he ran a clinic that was primarily—it was usually the ulnar nerve that was affected, and um, basically, it was like a leprosarium. And I was trying to think of—I guess—Long Hansen's disease or leprosy affects the ulnar nerve more, and um, and that is a form of a motor neuron uh, condition, also, but much less common and and um, not in the same category as ALS. But if you're used to making those kind of orthoses that hold the MCPs in flexion, and allow the IPs to kind of fall into extension, I really recommend using that if it helps the patient. And I make a lot of those. And sometimes I just include the ulnar two digits, um, and sometimes I include the MCPs, but I make it as a slip-on orthosis, that they can slip it on themselves. So really good Palmer um, arch support, um, always custom and um, and always uh, stay with them to make sure that they can slip it on and off themselves. And I make the dorsal part go long all the way to the PIP joints uh, just for, again, better distribution of, um, of forces uh, trying to hold those MCPs into flexion. And then number three, or number four, I guess, a simple little um, hand-based thumb post orthotic, orthotic, similar to what we would do for CMC osteoarthritis um i I've dealt, I do those in the figure of eight fashion. I think we actually put that um we had an article that was just published um in this most recent paper version of Journal of Hand Therapy that we had, but it's been online for a while for CMC osteoarthritis. And um the and I had that same orthosis also in the ALS article, uh both of them that I talked about orthoses. And that's just a it's basically a figure of eight orthoses that goes around the thumb. Um, and it's and with this case, it's with motor neuron disease, that one is often the most un- unobtrusive and easier for them to slip on and off for function. They're not wearing it quite as often as somebody with um, osteoarthritis. They're using it for functional activities. Uh, if they're having weakness in their rotator cuff muscles and in their um, upper extremities, I do a big no-no that most upper extremity therapists, especially shoulder specialists, will say never use over-the-door pulleys because it really it really does, um, you know, it, it, it's not a good thing. But I teach them how to use the over-the-door pulleys and how to... Um, orient their, um, involved arm into external rotation and to look for, um, you know, signs of wear and tear. It's really sometimes the only way they can do passive range of motion because their uninvolved arm might not be strong enough to do passive, you know, uh, um, to do self passive range of range of motion and the over the door pulling might be the only way to help keep mobility in their shoulders. So I do still use those, um. I also do self-passive range of motion, and I try to find gravity-eliminated planes that I can teach them to do that in. Um, I start aerobic activity early on, and I teach them um, ways that they can um, maintain some aerobic um, exercise, and, um, and that might, might look different for different people depending on their um, what they can afford, like if they can afford a, um, you know, a reclining bike, if they can afford a, um, an in-house stationary bike. Um, If they have a swimming pool, which in Arizona, almost everybody does have access to a swimming pool, either in their complex where they live or in their own home, Uh, water exercises have actually worked very, very well for ALS because um, of the buoyancy. Um, I... at you know, As we progress, or if I'm seeing them at a different stage, um, I help um, with independence and putting on their neck orthosis if they're um, using one, and, and typically they do need one. Um, I will um, help get them fit for a mobile arm support, which can greatly increase their use of their upper extremity um, for feeding and self-care um, if they have spasticity, or severe flacc- flaccidity in the hand, I might make custom night resting orthoses um, for for pain management and also for preventing contractures in the PIPs and DIPs in their hand. Once they have contractures in those IP joints, uh, it, function becomes very difficult. Um, those look differently. Sometimes I, um, I always do them custom. I never do off the shelf for that particular orthosis or rarely. Um, because. Um, they have different needs. Each patient has different needs, and sometimes it'll just be digit, small digit extension orthoses, those little teeny thin ones that we make for MCP arthroplasties to keep the IPs and to keep the IPs in extension and force and you know put the force toward the MCPs. I'll make those for ALS and lower motor neuron disease as well. Um, sometimes for all four digits, and sometimes for isolated digits, and sometimes for function. And if I'm doing it for function, I'll make sure that the pad is um, the finger pad is free for um, being able to have that sensory um, input. Um, I do have lots of pictures of, the, of a lot of these things in um, an article that I published in the journal, um, the SAGE journal Hand, um, that's the one that's put out by the American Association of Hand Surgery, um, this I don't remember the year of the publication, but I put I try to put as many pictures as possible of some of these orthoses and um, and really adaptive orthoses so that they can maintain. You know, continue with their in, as much independence as possible.
0: When patients come in, they usually have a caregiver that either starts attending right away, or maybe down the line in the future. Whether this is a child or a parent or a spouse, how are you involving them in the care, and what are you teaching them to help their um, their loved one kind of cope with this, or maybe with um, some dependent tasks? Like, do you have handouts that you usually give, or like, what's your go to for for involving the caregiver? Yeah,
2: I mean Mayo is a mecca of handouts. So I, I have the, uh, I've when I was in the ALS clinic, at least I had the luxury of having multiple handouts. Some of which, you know, I did help write also. But I do, um, I do give handouts. I do include the caretaker, um, uh, in all aspects, with the patient's permission. Um, I um, don't see children, um, we don't, we didn't see a lot of pediatrics at Mayo. We, we, you know, the ones we saw were like employees, kids for the most part. So I didn't, um, I haven't actually had the opportunity to do it with motor neuron disease with children, but with adults, um, I I sometimes will, um, you know, try to get the patient in more of a private, you know, situation and make sure that they're okay with me sharing things with their caretaker. But otherwise I just say it right in front of both of them. You know, how much do you want to share? How much do you want to learn? What, you know, why are you, you know, what, what do you want to get out of this session? And then I very much include them. Um, Sometimes they want to, they want to do the passive range of motion. So I teach them passive range of motion. And I especially teach them because MCP capsule is an issue with ALS as it is with spinal cord. You don't want the MCP capsule tightening. So I teach them how to do intrinsic plus uh, stretching by uh, flexing the MCPs while simultaneously extending the IPs. That's a big one that I teach caretakers. I teach them how to safely, um, passively range the, um, the shoulder. Um, and, um, And then uh, I do involve them with, um, you know, just any part that they want. I mean, I have um, one patient that had, um, they had primary lateral sclerosis that, you know, progressed to ALS. And uh, oftentimes when it starts there, um, they live longer. So this patient, um, when I left Mayo, was still alive and they had lived for like nine years, but they um, were just amazing. And their spouse... Um, I'm not going to even say genders because I don't want to, um, you know, give out who the person is, but um, their spouse fabricated some amazing things for the patient. And the spouse asked, can I have some of that scrap material that you're using after you make the orthosis? And I said, sure. So I gave the spouse the uh, scrap splint material that You know, probably would have just gotten thrown and told them how to safely use it and how to not burn themselves. It only took like five minutes and, you know, to protect their pan um, by putting a paper towel or a a tea cloth in the bottom. And, you know, because we've all made orthoses at home, at least I have. And and they came back with these really cool things that they made um, to help with flushing the toilet. Um, to help with, um, you know, accessing some things uh, in the bathroom, and um, you know, for confidentiality reasons, I don't want to give real specifics. But uh, that's one way that I've involved a spouse and or a caregiver. Um, you know, other things the caregiver can do is, you know, kind of help the patient identify what's important to them um, because they're with them more often than we are. So maybe they realize that. The patient could care less whether they are independent in toileting skills. Like they're fine with the person wiping them and you know um, doing doing some of the you know embarrassing toileting skills. Where we as therapists might think, oh, that's really important. That's part of their integrity. Every patient's different, and so the caregivers actually help you know with that piece of the puzzle of prioritizing what you're going to do in therapy because they're with the person more and they may help that. Um, client identify what's important to them
0: interesting Cindy what's your average age that you see or that you did see uh, when you were practicing, and then did
2: you see more male versus female? Yeah, I mean, it is slightly higher male to female, but I think it's a one point five um to one ratio and it and um also uh, that 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 ratio is decreasing as all people are living longer. Um, I would say, um, you know, I I haven't looked at those stats, but probably in the 50s and 50s is both the median and average age um, of ALS. Anyhow, 55, I believe it is right now. But um, so probably in the 50s. And that that holds true. But I certainly saw some very young people. I did see an 18 year old boy that it was just a very, very, very sad case um, um, who progressed very quickly to death. And um, I did see, um, I've seen many, you know, in their 30s and 40s as well. But then um, on this on the flip side of that, I've also seen people that have their first diagnosis of ALS in their eighties, which you know we used to think that wasn't even possible, but but it is, and it's now even being considered potentially a disease of aging, because as people are living longer, more and more people are getting it in their um, older older life, um, meaning over age eighty. So um, so yes, I um, I would say the average is probably still in the fifties, but. Um, but with extremes on both
1: ends. So being a hand therapist, maybe under, under experienced in this area, I have a patient come in with either a diagnosis or maybe not a diagnosis of uh, type of motor neuron lesion disease. Essentially, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I'm stretching these patients. I'm splinting them to make them more functional and potentially some light strengthening tasks. Would would you agree with that? I would agree with that. I would
2: add, um, looking at their overall health, including do they do any aerobic activity? Because aerobic activity is actually good for them. Um, are they a candidate for water um, exercises? And in terms of the stretching, sometimes you need to use orthoses to help with that, especially at the PIP joints that develop contractures very fast. And the MCP joints, which the capsule also tightens very fast. And remember with the MCP you you want to, I mean, I, a clinical pearl, pearl takeaway is always look at the MCP, make sure that they can attain full passive flexion at their MCPs. And at the very moment that they can't, you need to intervene with orthoses to stretch the MCPs. It can't be done just with passive stretching or active assistive stretching. You have to do it with, um, with an orthosis.
1: Perfect. I think I speak for both Cassie and myself. This is definitely an area that we could both grow in in knowing more. If you could see our our handouts over here, we both have been scribbling down some notes and curls and throughout <laughs> this this um, podcast.
2: Well, great, great. I, I'm really happy to hear that. I, I think that every hand therapist should be aware of this. I think that If they don't feel comfortable with it, they should know somebody that they can send them to who is comfortable with it. Um, Most of the major cities do have ALS centers of excellence right now. And um, and the OTs that work in those should be closely aligned with the hand therapist because really a certified hand therapist are the experts in orthotic fabrication. And a generalist OT trying to do an orthosis on a person with motor neuron disease, it's, it's difficult. I mean, it's even difficult for a certified hand therapist because you're you know you're having to hold their hand in a position that they cannot hold it themselves and sometimes there's spasticity involved and so, and it sometimes very mild and and that's a different discussion i i don't um, i don't make orthoses on a lot of uh, people that have spasticity but there are exceptions especially for function with als so i think there should be a greater alignment between hand therapists and motor neuron specialists of which there are more and more because ALS I'm telling you the ALS ice bucket bucket challenge did just tons of um good for the ALS um visibility uh, just so much and ever since then more and more centers of excellence have been popping up and more and more OTs are hopping on but a lot of them do not have experience with orthosis fa- fabrication and that's where they can really you know co um, treat a patient or, or refer for that aspect of it. And it's, it's not just using them as a splint tech, not by any means, because the skills of the hand therapist also include that clinical reasoning, um, in terms of pressure points, in terms of, um, distribution of pressure, in terms of, um, you know, basically basic biomechanical, uh, basically mechanical principles of, um, of orthotic fabrication that a splint tech or a general OT may not have. So I think it's, um, I think, I think we need this. We need to get this out here. I'm really thrilled that you invited me uh, to talk on this podcast and it was a good first experience.
0: Well, good. We're, we're glad that you could join us. But before you go, we always like to ask our uh, interviewees a three fun questions. So were you able to review those questions?
2: No. No, no, I never saw them. I oh, only wait, wait, wait. Oh, yes, I see. If I scroll down, I, I honestly did not get the questions till a few minutes before the interview. So the first one is if you could travel anywhere in the world, where would you go? Well, oh my gosh, I really want to go to Singapore. And um, the um, IFSHT. Um, you know, World Congress or is going to be there in 2028. So I, um, I would love to be a part of that meeting in Singapore in 2028. So that's that's one place. Um, I also want to go to Zanzibar. Um, I have a good friend that has a house in Zanzibar, and I'm I'm working with her um, developing some material to teach some of the therapists in Africa. Actually, it's at Saint Giles University. Arizona. And what is the most exotic food you've ever eaten? Oh my gosh, I think I did eat a cricket one time and I that's not that exotic. Well, I think that's pretty good. Um, I'm, I'm a foodie. I love food. I love all food and I, I, I cook. I, I get the New York Times, you know, recipes and started in 2020 during the pandemic and, and make things all the time. But I don't know that I've gone that exotic um, beyond sushi and, um, and maybe that cricket. Oh, oh, I know. When I moved to Arizona, somebody gave me a jar of mezcal and there was a worm in the bottom. Mm. And so, yes, I did partake in the drinking of that, if that counts. (laughs)
0: Yep. That's it. You can write a book of all your experiences in your
2: life.
1: <laughs> wow.
2: Yeah, I've been told that before. <laughs> uh, many of them are quite humorous. So, yes, especially raising four little kids, all 18 months apart from each other. So. Oh my
0: gosh. Wow. <laughs> you had your hands
2: full. Yeah. So um, thank you, Cassie, and uh, thank you, Shelly. Thank you. We really appreciate your
0: time today. This, This has been fantastic. Thank you for joining us as we interviewed and dissected motor neuron diagnoses with Cindy Ivey. We hope you wrote down some takeaways from this interview and bring this knowledge back to your team. Stay tuned for our next Hand to Shoulder podcast.